It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. This week, author Peter Doggett returns to join Nate for a discussion of the jazz age based on his book, Electric Shock, Recorded Music from the Gramophone to the iPhone. In this episode, Peter and Nate talk about the birth of radio and the invention of electronic recording, which allowed crooners like Bing Crosby and Rudy Valley to forge a new intimacy with their audience. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by author Peter Doggett to discuss his book, Electric Shock. From the gramophone to the iPhone, 125 years of pop music. Peter, welcome back. Thanks very much. Good to be here. And so last time you were here, we were talking about uh, some of the singing stars of the first era of recorded music, the gramophone and phonograph era. We talked about Al Jolson, Burt Williams, and Enrico Caruso. And this time I want to talk a little bit about, um, we'll segue into the radio era. But first I want to talk about... um, the first jazz band to to make a big impact on record, which is the original Dixieland Jazz Band. Ironically, a white band, not original, and they spelled jazz wrong. What's the story of the o, uh, ODJB? The ODJB, yes. Um, obviously, they weren't the original Dixieland Jazz Band, but they were they were the originals as far as the great American public, and then the great public in Britain as well were concerned because they were the first ones to make records and also the first ones to to tour Great Britain as well. Um, interestingly, some, some of the black musicians who were playing very similar music in New Orleans were offered the opportunity before them to record, but they didn't want to give their secrets away to other bands. So they said, no, no, we'll just keep, the, we'll keep plowing our own field and... Um, keep hold of our own audience and then nobody will be able to steal our stuff. And that's, uh, it seems like a poor decision in retrospect, but it's entirely understandable. If you don't want people learning your repertoire, not recording it is a great way to protect your secrets. But imitators like the ODJB, um, cut through the clutter right there. And, and, and what was unique about the ODJB? Like what did they change about music and culture? Um, well, in, in in terms of culture, they, they open, opened up a new era of African American music to all of the, all of the American public. Um, now, the ordinary white Americans were starting to get used to the idea of ragtime, and that was it seemed controlled, and they could deal with that. And suddenly, what was coming out of um, the early records by the ODJB was something that sounded like a riot taking place. I mean, in in terms of the impact that it had on people, I think it's the equivalent the, the equivalent to people hearing Elvis for the first time or the Sex Pistols in Britain in 1976, 77. Um, the the very first ODJB single, which was called Livery Stable Blues, I describe it in my book as being a complete a complete free for all. Um, it suggested a gang of crazed instrumentalists fighting for supremacy. So the idea that here was a nice orderly band who were all following the same music at the same time, that went out of the window. And suddenly 
the the uh, jazz element came in because there were little bits of improvisation there, but mostly it was just the sense that every in instrumentalist was competing for space, and um, they were using any object within their reach to bang, to bash, to blow, to make the wildest sound possible. And this is also at a point before the invention of electric recording. So everything's acoustically recorded and can't capture the full sound of a jazz band. Um, certainly not a jazz orchestra, no, as we would come to know it in, in, in the later 20s and the 30s. Um, for a start, I, I, as I think we, we discussed before on one of your programs, um, the... the uh, Acoustic piano and the human voice, would, would, particularly the female voice, were two things that really couldn't come across very well. So in, in the pre-electric era of recording, horns, um, saxophones, trumpets, etc., they, they came across. You could hear them. And so the, the average early jazz band on record was basically a cacophony of percussion and horns. And cacophony is is a pretty good description of the ODJB. I mean, I think they're critically overlooked because they were Anglo-American rather than African-American. But I think there's still some life in, in their music when you hear it. There's a certain Sex Pistols quality um, or early Rolling Stones quality of just sort of a damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. Uh, and let's let's hear the uh, livery stable blues by the ODJB, the original Dixieland Jazz Band. the Liberty Stable Blues, a record that electrified the world on both sides of the Atlantic by the original Dixieland Jazz Band. Peter, they kicked off what's called the Jazz Era, or the Jazz Age. What was, this is coming right after the end of World War One. do you see big differences in the way England and America reacted to the end of the war? Or were both of them de dealing with similar turbulent social change? Um, Obviously, a, a, a much larger proportion of young English men have been involved in the conflict in the First World War than was the case in America. Um, so, and, and also, again, very obviously, the, the uh, theatre of war was, was, was much closer physically from, uh, to, to Britain than it was to America. So, that, so that when the officers came home from the Western Front in 1918, there was a huge, huge sense of culture shock in Britain um, that they would cross the English Channel, which is what, I don't know, 20, 30 miles across, and they would go from absolute hell, absolute horror, to a world that they didn't recognize at home, where, where they, they had left behind their pure, <laughs> sedate, calm wives, and come home four years later to discover that their wives were gathering their skirts up around their knees, and were dancing to strange African-American rhythms. So that juxtaposition of the two cultures from sort of pre-war to post-war, I think was a real shock for English society. Um, as you can see from the press at the time, as soon as uh, um, any music approximating jazz 
starts to be played in nightclubs and so on in London, the whole of the British establishment is absolutely appalled. This is the greatest moral outrage going. Why on earth have all these brave men given their lives to save British civilization when, meanwhile, back at home, the rest of the country appears to have gone mad? And and one thing I found interesting reading this was that the charge seemed to have been led by the Prince of Wales. <laughs> this is the future King Edward VIII, although, um, as anybody who knows anything about, about the UK royal, fam- royal family will know, he wasn't actually the king for very long, because he met an American woman who was a divorcee and, and uh, married her and had to abdicate his crown. But both he and the future King George VI, who was the the father of the current queen, both of them were keen jazz fans. And unfortunately for the jazz bands who played in London, if um, either of these two royal princes turned up, um, it, it was considered quite the thing for the band leader to invite one of these princes princes to get up on stage and perform with them. And um, I think in particular, the, the future Edward VIII, the Prince of Wales, liked to bash the drums and the cymbals and anything else he could find, and um, was not necessarily the greatest musical addition to the band. <laughs> it's sort of a twist on the old stories about the Beatles inviting gangsterish teddy boys to join him on stage in the pre-Ringo era. <laughs> <laughs> very, very similar effect in, in terms of the sound, I think, yeah. Yeah, and, and so jazz hits hard, but it doesn't take long before it's tamed a little bit. And, and a couple of guys named Paul Whiteman and George Gershwin um, have a lot to do with sort of civilizing jazz. And how did, how did that transition hit on both sides of the Atlantic? Well, I I think what you have to remember, first of all, is that, how would you class it? Jazz jazz snobbery is is something that only gets applied retrospectively. At the time, every dance band that's playing music that is slightly syncopated and recognisably modern is, as far as the outside world is concerned, a jazz band. Um, Now, later in the 1920s, they started to get divided between sweet bands who concentrated on the melody and hot bands who were prepared to have a little bit more improvisation. And then once you get the first first generation of jazz critics and real jazz aficionados coming along, hot bands good, sweet bands bad, and that's the verdict that gets passed into history. At the time, it was all dance music. It was all exciting. It was all meant to get people out on the dance floor. And there was no great division between sweet jazz and hot jazz. Uh, but in, in, in terms of selling records and also in, in, in terms of popularity amongst dancers, there is no doubt that it was the sweet bands, the more sophisticated ones, who were much more popular, not just with older listeners, but also with students and, and young people in general. And what was Paul Whiteman's particular contribution that earned, earned him the sobriquet King of Jazz? <sighs> King of Jazz, which which is the name of a, a, a very dubious film that was made at the, the start of the talk era, the late 1920s, fe- featuring what was supposed to be Paul Whiteman's uh, idea of the history of jazz, and it included an animation sequence that is see, seen through modern eyes, downright racist, unfortunately. Um, 
he, he was a popularizer. He loved the music he'd heard from black musicians, but he wanted to make it okay for the white mainstream audience to hear. And he also loved classical music as well. And so he wanted to bring the sophistication of classical music together with the danceability of jazz music. Um, and, and he was helped by an arranger um, whose name was Ferdy Grove. I hope I pronounced his name properly. He, he was really the first dance band arranger who completely changed the way in which dance bands put together their music. Rather than just playing the tune all together from start to end, the Paul Whiteman band started to go, okay, we can make this more interesting. If the brass instruments sort of pull back during this chorus, and then we can, we can hear the strings, and then the strings hold off, and we can accentuate the trumpets next time around. I mean, this, is the, this would become very standard stuff for any, any jazz band in later years. But at the time, it, it seemed quite revolutionary. And it was quickly adopted as a technique by just about every jazz band and dance band in America. And I think this is a good cue. I'm going to switch up on Steph on the music selection. I I'd toured with playing Marion Harris's I'm a Jazz Vampire just because uh, it seems to speak to the liberated lady. But I think we got to hear a little bit of Rhapsody in Blue uh, by Paul Whiteman, George Gershwin's great composition, the first sort of concert music written in a jazz vein. This is Rhapsody in Blue. And that was Rhapsody in Blue, an early attempt to legitimize jazz uh, by putting it into sort of a classical context. How do you see Gershwin um, as a jazz figure? Do you see him more as a classical figure, a jazz figure, or did people even care about those distinctions at the time? Um, I, I, I think at the time they did, because, because he, he obviously had the artistic integrity and ability and, and training to, to be a classical composer, but he loved jazz music. Um, and so he, he, he set out quite definitely to combine the two, to use elements of both um, these two, two in, entirely opposed genres, it seems at the time, and create music that really has endured for almost a century now. And you, you, you mentioned Rhapsody in Blue, that was written for, for a concert, which was staged by Paul Whiteman in New York in the mid-1920s. And it was supposed to be called an, an Experiment in Modern Music. And Paul Whiteman set out to em emphasize how much jazz, in his eyes, had changed from the cacophony of the early ODJB into something much more sophisticated. And at the very last minute, because he forgot he'd been commissioned to, to write this piece, um, George Gershwin came up with one of the great American compositions of the 20th century, Rhapsody in Blue, which the Paul Whiteman Orchestra always used to have to play very quickly to try and get it onto a 78 record. But, um, and so, so, so that was staged for the first time, performed by the Whiteman Band. Um, and the response from critics, both jazz critics and classical critics, was very, very guarded. They, they really thought it was a perversion of both of the styles of music that they loved. 
and it was only really in later years that it would become adopted as almost the, the sound of the interwar era uh, in terms of American music. And let's talk about the sea change that happened technologically around this time and, th and that made recording Rhapsody in Blue possible because I don't think you would have been able to do it with the Tom Edison technology of the teens. There's a switch from acoustic recording to electric recording. Um, and, and you call it um, a series, one of a series of transformations in the way that re records were manufactured and heard. And that uh, you've got a quote here that I just loved. Uh, one writer declared that his wife found the new noise of electrical recording quite unbearable, but that he had grown to enjoy it, which may or may not be a good thing. By yeah. 1930, he was of the opinion, I do not believe any audience could sit still and listen nowadays to hours of electrical recording and remain sane. <laughs> exactly, which is exactly what, for example, Neil Young would say about the CD era as well. Um, and... And then you've heard the same charge repeated more recently in the, what's it called, the noise wars, the loudness wars, where if every, if every song is recorded with all the needles going into the red all the time, then the human brain can't stand to listen to it for more than about 20 minutes. Well, it sounds very weird now from all, all, almost a century's perspective, but that was the way people felt about the sonic clarity that was offered by the electrical recording um, thing in the 1920s and this changed the way people sang on records i mean you have this huge sea change from the big belters like enrico caruso or al jolson to what they called crooners and what's 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 the difference between what is a crooner uh, well i'll answer that question by by doing the opposite of a crooner which is that if you were a vocalist trying to be heard above a band in the pre-electrical era, you had to enunciate like this, because otherwise nobody could hear what you were singing. And then suddenly when you were a crooner, you could get in very low to the microphone and you could whisper into the ear of the listener and be very intimate. You didn't have to strain to be heard because the, the, the person behind the controls, the person who would come to be known as the record producer, could arrange the... Um, what's the word, levels of the instruments and the different parts of the uh, of the music so that you, you, you can make a production whereby a very quiet thing, the voice, could be heard above a very loud thing, the band. Yeah, and you described this by saying that there was now no such thing as an authentic recording of a musician. Every reproduction of a performance was idealized and imaginary, whether or not it matched the expectations of its makers. How long did it take before the record producer really started to make themselves felt? Um, I, I suppose I, I would argue almost immediately, just just in the sense that you've described. But in, in terms of anybody outside the industry suddenly becoming aware of a different sound for different producers. That was really after the Second World War that that, that happened, um, when with, with the introduction of stereo sound and with, with more complex recording equipment that would allow multi-tracking and so on. And so before we get to the... I want to I hit the difference you, you enunciated so cleverly between a belter and a crooner by talking about Rudy Valley. This was a guy who literally sang with a megaphone 
before he was allowed to record with electric technology. This was not a strong singer. And so what was what was it about Rudy Valley that was controversial and, and why was he a lightning rod for charges of effeminacy for the way he sang on record? Um, when, when he started crooning, when you asked me earlier, what, 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 what does crooning mean? It means whispering in a provocative and intimate sense into the ear of the of the listener um which are on on one level one very basic level made somebody who was listening to a record or more likely in the late 1920s to the radio made them feel as if the singer was actually singing directly to them but at the same time um lots of men were felt felt challenged um felt felt their masculinity challenged by the softness and dexterity with which the likes of Rudy Valley, particularly, and Bing Crosby would sing, and and as as you say, it, it, he he was he was accused of having a, a a female sort of element to his sound because he wasn't being gruff and masculine and deep. He, he was he was whispering. And and this. Era. I mean, you, you know, we've got these certain cliches that have come to us of this era of of twenty somethings in fur coats and straw boater hats singing into me- megaphones, and they're frequently also playing a ukulele. What was the fascination with ukuleles in the nineteen twenties? Um, well, I, I suppose that they they started to arrive in large num- in large numbers in in the states for the first time. They weren't expensive. They, they were a quiet instrument that you could still whisper over and still get yourself heard. And, and it was a novelty as well. Um, much more of a novelty, in fact, in the 1920s than the guitar was. Although we automatically assume now that the singer-songwriter um, is, is going to have an acoustic guitar, that was very much not the case in the 1920s and 1930s. It was only really after that that... Um, Acoustic balladeers would, would play the guitar rather than ukulele. And this this brings me to a pretty unusual character who was a huge star in England, although he didn't really make much of an impact on this side of the Atlantic. But uh, George Formby Jr., who oh. um, <laughs> <laughs> who played a lot of ukulele songs. And I want to I want to play one of one of his tunes that uh, cuts to the heart of the George Formby style. It, it's 1920s, but the guy worked a little bit blue. This is a song that was um, scandalous in its day called With My Little Ukulele in My Hand by George Formby Jr. Now everybody's got a crazy notion of their own. Some like to mix up with the crowd, some like to be alone. It's no one else's business as far as I can see. But every time that I go out, the people stare at me with my little ukulele in my hand. Of course, the people do not understand. And that was the inimitable George Formby Jr. with his little ukulele in my hand. Can you try to explain to Americans of the 21st century what... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what the deal was with George Formby Jr. Well, he he was very risque. He was very rude. He had he had a huge smile. He had terrible teeth. Um, he was a, a a product of the music hall era era, which is the UK equivalent of vaudeville in the states. His father before him 
had been a, a comedian and singer as well, whose trademark was that he used to cough a lot. And he'd cough, cough, cough and say, oh, I'm coughing so much champion tonight. Um, his son wasn't quite such a good, so, so good at coughing, but he was very good at making up slightly rude, rude ditties about innocent young men who had a, a little stick of Blackpool Rock in their hands or their little ukulele, or they were looking through the window, or the cleaning windows and watching ladies in the, in the bath and so on. Most of these records were banned by the BBC at the time for being, for being offensive, but they, they've, they've come to be part of sort of British mainstream culture, really, from the 20th century. And one of the Beatles was a huge George, George Formby fan. George Harrison used to go to George Formby conventions in the north of England in the final years of his life. And if you were a friend of George Harrison's, he would always give you a ukulele. Yeah, I've, I've heard Tom Petty uh, talk about that in the George Harrison documentary. And, and it, the music hall influence, I assume that Ray Davis of the Kinks uh, was also influenced by George Formby as well. I mean, this music hall tradition definitely is something that reemerges throughout British popular music history through the 20th century. But I want to get back across the Atlantic and talk about the jazz singers. And, you know, it's to the extent that this is remembered at all, it's generally Bing Crosby who gets the credit for bringing jazz phrasing into popular music, uh, at least as a white singer. But you point out that Gene Austin was actually the guy that should get the credit. Yeah, who, who also wrote one of the most memorable songs of the, of the pre-Second World War era. Um, <laughs> excuse me, and End of the Road which um, none other than Bob Dylan adapted for one of the songs on his, now which album was that, Love and Theft, I think. Um, so yes, he, 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 Gene Austin, was the guy who really first brought jazz phrasing into crooning. Um, and, and, and then Bing, Bing Crosby took that, smoothed it slightly, and carried that style around the world. But in, in, in the book, when I'm talking about Bing Crosby, I actually make an apology to him because I'm trying to think how old I was when he died. I was about 20 when he died. And to me, he was a complete irrelevance. I mean, nobody could be more square than Bing Crosby. And it was only in more recent years, when, in fact, when I was writing the book, that I actually started to listen with open ears to what Bing sounded like, to, to the way he would play with the rhythm of a song, play with the phrasing, um, to, to how intelligent a singer he was. And realised that actually he he was one of the one of the great um, archetypal innovators of music in the twentieth century. Yeah, and you've got a great Artie Shaw quote that uh, summed up Bing Crosby. So the thing you have to understand about Bing Crosby is that he was the first hip white person born in the United States. What does that mean? Um, I, I, I suppose certainly in mainstream terms, he was the first white performer who was not only very open to black music, but managed to encompass the whole of the lifestyle that went with it, the street smarts, the attitude of, of black music in the 1920s. Um, not caricature it, but just carry it in the way he greeted the outside world. That's a very complicated way of saying he was hip. But um, I, I, I think... With hip, you, you recognize it when you see it. And and if you listen to Bing's early work in particular, 
you you do hear the hipness. I mean, and and there's an enormous catalog of quality material there from Bing, um, but at the same time that Bing is rising and he comes up as part of the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. A new technology is changing the way people listen to music. We, we introduced it at the beginning of the show, but radio hits in a big way. It's been around, but it becomes commercially viable uh, in the mid to late 20s. And you, and you said that crooning and radio grew in tandem, fueling each other's rise. How does that work? Uh, well, the main crooners, because they were so popular, were, were all given their, their shows on, on, on radio networks. And in, in the same same way that television programs, certainly in America in the 50s and 60s, might, might actually stop the traffic at 7 o'clock in the evening if everybody wanted to see the latest episode of, I don't know, I Love Lucy or something. Um, the, these American the, um, the radio shows by the likes of Rudy Valley and Bing Crosby would have the same effect. They, they would be the thing that everybody around the water cooler, which hadn't been invented yet, would have been talking about in the, uh, work the next day. And you also talk about the intimacy of radio. You've got this great quote, radio could convince millions that an entertainer was performing for each of them alone. It turned music and especially the art of the crooner into a private act of communion. And this is something that I hadn't really thought about until I read your book, but this is probably one of the first times people are hearing music alone. Music had always been a communal experience prior to this. Exactly, yes. You, 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 you would have a, well. Either music would take place in the home, usually at a at a party. Um, you, you, you would have the piano in the in the sitting room or whatever, and bring all your aunts and uncles in, and maybe have a sing song. Um, or you would go out to see a, a, a band or a vaudeville bill or whatever, but usually with with scores or hundreds or maybe even thousands of other people. And suddenly, with radio, and obviously with we're playing records at home as well. Um, you were there alone. Perhaps you were doing the ironing or the washing up, or maybe if, if, if you were a love-struck 16-year-old, you were sat with your ear right up against the radio receiver, and you, you were imagining that Bing Crosby or Rudy Valley were singing just for you. And from there, well, you, you can really see the birth of the whole sort of pop star culture at that point, the the complete obsession, infatuation with in individual, almost always male stars, and and it wasn't just on the American side of the Atlantic that that um, radio was hitting. It was also a number of English stars. How would you differentiate between the way radio impacted in Britain and the way it impacted in the UK? It was a very different commercial proposition, or in Britain, not a commercial proposition at all. Exactly. I mean, in, in, in Britain, we, we have always been able, if the wind's blowing in the right direction, to, to uh, pick up radio signals from the, the, the uh, mainland of Europe. I mean, the, the, the most famous European radio station is Radio Luxembourg. But I, I grew up in the 1960s on the south coast of England, and everybody always talked about Radio Luxembourg. But even though <laughs> I, I, I was in geographical terms quite close to it by English standards, I could never get it on the radio. You could never hear it. Um, so if the, the, the uh, difference with the, the uh, British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, was that as 
they, they started to build more and more radio masts, almost everybody in Britain could hear it. But as you say, it was, it was an entirely uncommercial, non-commercial um, scheme. The idea that this radio station would ever broadcast anything as um, gauche or rude as a, an advertisement for food or clothing or cigarettes or whatever was absolutely scandalous to, to the original director general, Lord Reith. Um, and as far as he was concerned, the radio was there for educational purposes. And so they, the, the BBC would occasionally play light music, as it was called, pop, as we would call it. But most of the time, if they were playing music at all, it would be classical music, or it would be hymns, or folk tunes from around Europe, that kind of thing. Um, and even if they were playing popular music, it would be played in a very un-American, unsensational, un-DJ un kind of way. Um, they would announce the song. They would say, so, 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 is now going to sing the composition, um, I'm in love with you. And then they after it was over, that was so, so singing, I'm in love with you. This is the British Broadcasting Corporation from London. And so it would go on. So not, not exciting radio listening by American standards. The American radio business is going to survive an enormous economic sea change that hits in, in the late 20s, obviously, with the crash of 1929. And phonograph records are basically wiped out as a business proposition for almost a decade. But radio survives. And anthems like this next song are a big part of that and helping people deal with the depression. And this is Bing Crosby singing, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? They used to tell me I was building a dream And so I followed the mob When there was earth to plow Or guns to bear I was always there Right on the job. And that was Bing Crosby singing the Great Depression era anthem, Brother Can You Spare a Dime. This this is a bit more serious than most of the music that we've heard so far and, and, and really reflects a sea change in era. Um how do you characterize Brother Can You Spare a Dime? Is this an anomaly or is this a new era? Um I I, I think it's both. I mean it's it's not quite a protest song, but it's pretty close to a knuckle for popular entertainment in the 1930s and, and it, it did lead it, it did lead to some media commentators complaining that perhaps, perhaps Bing Crosby was showing signs of communism because he appeared to be criticizing the, the, the whole makeup of capitalist society with that song. Now obviously it would soon in, in subsequent decades it would be seen very much just as mainstream entertainment but there, there's no doubt at the time with hundreds of thousands, millions of Americans having lost their jobs, huge numbers of homeless people suddenly. It's, it's, it's a very pertinent, very sort of, um, what's the word, contemporary theme for a song. It's very powerful. And, and in addition to radio, a new medium comes into our orbit because sound is added to movies. And Al Jolson, the, the great vaudeville star of the 
20s that we talked about, or the teens that we talked about before, is the man to usher in the new era in a film called The Jazz Singer. And so how do you sum up the impact of The Jazz Singer? And in light of 2019 concerns, given the blackface that features so prominently, I mean, do you feel that it's, is it, is it sort of a racist relic in the way that, that um, Birth of a Nation, the first great silent full-length movie was? Or is it a little bit more nuanced than that? Um, I'm, I'm, I would definitely think it's a lot more nuanced than that. But against that, in the context, as you say, of 2019, I wouldn't want to make a case for it as being an acceptable form of entertainment now. But if you go, if you go back 90 years... There was absolutely no sense in Al Jolson's head that he was insulting insulting African-Americans or or trying to demean them in any way, or even really to steal their culture. It was just just part of vaudeville tradition that for certain kinds of songs, you you would act like a minstrel, which would mean mean putting black face paint on and big red um, paint on your lips and... Yeah, from, from our standpoint, it looks absolutely appallingly racist, but it wasn't intended that way at the time. Yeah, I mean, Joel was an immigrant, and minstrelsy was, you know, at this point had been one of the most popular American popular music forms since the 1850s. So in a way, he was trying to assimilate and become a full-blown American. And I believe that African-American performers of the day considered Jolson a friend and ally, that he was somebody who uh, supported them. You know, there's a famous incident of him helping some African-American performers get to eat in a restaurant that wasn't normally integrated and other examples. So it's, to me, somewhat poignant that he's viewed as, you know, as retrograde and and racist as some of the um, truly bad actors of the 20s, which was the era that saw the reemergence of the Ku Klux Klan on the American scene. But um, how did, did movie, was he sort of a, ahead of his time or did movie music begin to make an impact? Like how long did it take movie music to really mature? Um, it certainly didn't happen overnight. I mean, what, what happened with the jazz singer was that first of all, Al Jolson was required to make, films that were almost identical to that over and over and over again for the next six, seven, eight years. And then other people would make equally sentimental and equally ridiculous films in in the same tradition. Um, The early talkies were hampered very much by by the need to hide the microphone somewhere on the set. So that you you would end up with people having to talk or sing in, in, into a, into a vase of flowers, just because that's where the only that was the only place they could find the microphone. Um, and there, there was actually quite a movement in the 1930s to do away with talkies and and to go back to the golden art artistry of the silent era, because as soon as you got the talkies, the most important thing was the voice and all the um, concentration on making beautiful images went out of the window. It, it, it was only as the, the technology of, of sound recording improved through the 1930s that you were actually able to, to progress both with sound and with, and with um, the, the visual side as well. And, I, and one thing you point out that, that I had not really thought about, I'd seen the films 
or the footage, but I had hadn't really realized the context. But it wasn't just Al Jolson doing full length features, but it was also singers that were more niche genres like Jimmy Rogers, the country uh, a hillbilly s- singer, and blues icon Bessie Smith, who made short films featuring their music. And this is the only footage we have of Smith and Rogers today. That's right. And in, in retrospect, isn't it incredible that anybody actually thought to point a camera at Bessie Smith and at Jimmy Rogers? Because, to be quite honest, it would have been much easier not to film them. So it's a, a, a glorious accident. And, and also proof of their popularity within, within their, their um, style, their, their own cultures. Um, but it, really, it's, a, it's, it's an accident of fate rather than a, a great plan on the part of movie makers. And one other bit of film that I haven't been able to track down, but that you bring up, the seven-year-old Sammy Davis Jr. starring in a short film in 1933, Talk about that. Like, how did Sammy Davis Jr. end up on film at age seven? Well, I mentioned Bessie. Well, you, you you mentioned Bessie Smith, and I was saying, obviously, how popular she was. She was with the black audience. Um, equally popular was Ethel Waters, who who who, who played young Sammy Davis Jr.'s mother in the film. Um, and, and obviously, that by the nineteen thirties, the the there were cinemas in black parts of big American cities as well as white areas of the cities. And there were films that were being tailored particularly for the African-American audience. And and one of those was this amazing short film. It's about 20 minutes long, something like that, which is called Rufus Jones for President. And Sammy Davis Jr., age seven, plays Rufus Jones and does the most incredibly precocious dancing, singing. I mean... I, I suppose I can only compare him to the young Michael Jackson in the sense that you're looking at a very small child who it appears can do absolutely anything he wants. And obviously in their very different ways, they would both go on to fulfill their artistic potential, at least in later decades. And so to wrap up this episode, I wanted to sort of pull out and, and look at the big picture. In the introduction to your book, you say that the 21st century is a unique moment. For the first time, modern technology allows us to construct our own route through documented history, but it also strips that history of its context. Streaming and download sites offer you the music, but no hint of when or why it was made and who it was made for. Also missing is any sense of why we enjoy the music we choose, how we have learned down the generations to react as we do when the hailstorm of contemporary media fires up jazz or hip-hop or punk in our direction. Is there, if you were put to put a context on the music of the 1920s uh, for a modern listener, what are the highlights that you would recommend people seek out? And, and what is the relevance to our lives today, if any? Um, I'm not sure about the relevance beyond the fact that great music, great art is always relevant. Um, so I suppose, I suppose in historical terms, I mean, as we've, we've been describing, the music of, of uh, the 1920s. It reflects the post-war era. It reflects what's come to be known as the Jazz Age. It reflects the Great Depression. But also, if you if you can strip away all the sort of preconceptions about what pop or popular music or rock or whatever should sound like, and just actually appreciate the musicality and the, the talent um, of the performers that were, who were making many of these records in the 1920s, 
you can get huge enjoyment out of them, out, out of the crooners, um, because you can trace the link from them to, I don't know, James Taylor and on to Ed Sheeran, um, from the, the dance bands, because their, their sophistication is reflected, I don't know, 30, 40 years later by, by the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, for example, by jazz, which obviously would very soon afterwards explode into bebop and beyond. Um, so there was an enormous amount of pleasure to be to be to be taken from the music of that era, as long as you can open your ears to the fact that it doesn't sound like modern contemporary music. All right, and thank you, Peter. And Peter will be rejoining us next week to talk about the Great American Songbook and the rise of swing. So, Peter, thanks for joining, and we'll look forward to having you again. Great, thank you. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Come back next week when author Peter Doggett returns to talk about the swing era. Electric Shock, recorded music from the gramophone to the iPhone, is available from Random House and can be found wherever fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.